Welcome to the Mighty Littles podcast. Hi, Mighty Littles listeners. This is Anna. Welcome to episode 14 of the Mighty Littles podcast. I have a couple of announcements today before I introduce our guest for today. I wanted to thank everybody for listening to the podcast and starting it off as a success. We have gotten our first 10 episodes out And we're now working on episodes 14 through 25 that will be coming out this fall. Amazingly, I am actually ahead of production schedule. And so we are going to start bringing you the Mighty Littles podcast on a weekly basis. The second thing that I wanted to let you know about is that the month of September is going to be our mini Mighty Littles marathon. So I will be doing a podcast talking about limits of viability and all of the things that go into that discussion. And then I have a series of parent interviews with moms who delivered babies at 22 and 23 weeks gestation. And we really talk about how things went with their NICU stays and how things are going now. So look for that through the month of September. It will be our mini Mighty Littles Marathon. Next episode, you're going to hear from Caitlin. Her son, Leo, was in the NICU, and she really does a nice job talking about mom guilt and feelings of parents in the NICU. So that is coming up next week. For today's episode, episode 14, I'm really excited to welcome Taryn. Taryn is a mom of two babies that were in the newborn ICU, both a 30-weeker and a 31-weeker. She lives in Canada, and she is the creator and voice behind the Messy Mama podcast. With that, we're just going to jump into today's episode and be on the lookout for Leo's story next week and then our mini Mighty Littles Marathon in September. I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you do, don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. It really helps other people be able to find our podcast and get all of this wonderful information. Hi, everybody. This is Anna with the Mighty Littles Podcast, and I'm super excited today to have Taryn with us. She is a mom of two preemies, and she's going to let us know about her preemie story. And she is also the name and the face and the voice behind the Messy Mama Pod. Taryn, welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It feels so weird to be on this side of things. <laughs> yeah, it's different, right? To have the questions coming at you as opposed so to be different. the one asking the questions. Yeah, when you asked how I wanted to be introduced, I was honestly like, oh my gosh, I've never even thought of this. Like, that's usually my job, so I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, and when I was getting interviewed for radio shows when my son was in the hospital after he had COVID, it was the same thing. And it's way easier to be on this end, the question asking, I know how I want things to go, yes. I have control over how it gets edited, then to be on the other end where you have certain things that you want to say and you're not entirely sure what you're going to get asked. I don't know. It's just a little exactly. bit more anxiety provoking to be on your end of things this time. Totally. And I, it's funny, the moms that I bring on to my podcast I'm always like don't worry it's just it's so easy we're just gonna have a conversation but now I have a whole new respect for them because I'm sitting here like it is gonna be a conversation but who knows which direction it's gonna go 
yeah. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I promise it will just be a conversation. These tend to be Good. very, very conversational. So Good. that's perfect. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself to the Mighty Littles listeners for people that don't know you? Sure. So I'm Taryn. I'm actually from Canada. I'm in Saskatchewan. Um, I've been married for four years this summer to my husband, Derek. We met in university. And from there, things just kind of seemed to happen fast. So we got married. Um, We were expecting. And then, like you mentioned, I have two preemies. So we weren't actually married that long before my first son, Tate came. Um, He's a 30-weeker, so he came completely unexpected early. Um, And then we had our little girl, Reese, who is a 31-weeker. And that was a little bit more drawn out of an experience. But yeah, they basically keep me on my toes 24-7. I am a teacher, but I am lucky enough to stay home with my kiddos right now until they're probably about school age. So Nice. So did you know that your first baby was going to be born preterm? Oh, man, this is a loaded question. So no, I guess Um, I had a bicornuate uterus. And so for those listeners who don't know what that is, my uterus basically didn't form properly. And so I had a septum or a a wall, I guess, running down the middle of it connecting at the top and the bottom. So that was picked up on my first ultrasound, like my dating ultrasound. And the tech was actually like, wow, I've never seen this before. Like you have two uteruses. And me and my husband were like, oh, my God, what does that mean? Like, (laughs) that sounds terrifying. And so I was referred to a specialist um, and monitored very closely. But preterm labor was never really talked about. And I think maybe because I was very naive. It was my first pregnancy. I was 24 years old. I had never heard of this before. Preterm labor and delivery wasn't something that we even thought could happen. And so it wasn't a question that we asked. And then with your second, were you a little bit more prepared? Yeah. So after I had Tate, I had a surgery. I had many procedures and then ultimately a surgery to remove that wall. Um, And so the surgery was deemed successful, which they actually gave me like a 95% chance that they weren't going to be able to remove the wall because it was connected so thick at the top and the bottom of my uterus, but they did. And so that's why we went ahead to have another baby. And Things looked really great until my 29-week appointment, and um, my OB was absolutely wonderful. She ended up doing um, an ultrasound, just to be sure, just to give me peace of mind, because I was getting a little bit anxious uh, being around that 29, 30 weeks, which is when Tate spontaneously came, and my cervix had gone from 3.8 down to 1.2 centimeters, and so then we knew I was heading into preterm labor and I was put um, on bed rest in the hospital and I was there for two weeks. So we were worried about it, but things had looked so good that it wasn't a concern until it was, Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, that's so common what we hear from moms all the time. Either, even if you know you're high risk, it there's kind of like this sense of no, things are going just fine. There's no problems whatsoever. And then the floor just falls out from underneath you. Even if you know you're high risk, you're still surprised by that. Totally. And that was something that I was not expecting. And I think because my, like, I cannot say enough good things about my OB and she was so confident. And when she wasn't confident with something, she would tell me, like, she respected me enough. We had that really great rapport and we had those conversations. So 
when she was doing the ultrasound and I saw her face go from joyful, happy, we're, you know, we're chatting and we're talking about Tate and everything. And then she, I could tell something was wrong. It literally, like you said, the floor just fell out from underneath us and it was completely shocking. It was completely shocking. Yeah. Yeah. So some of our listeners might be wondering why you're talking about your cervix going from three to one when Mm. when you have a baby you dilate from zero to one all the way to ten so there's two different things that your cervix does the first thing is that it kind of shrinks down and thins out and so three is a nice thick cervix and one is starting to be a little bit thin and then once it's all the way thin out thinned out then it can start to dilate so for moms who are higher risk, for moms who have had a preterm delivery, for moms who have a history of an incompetent cervix, they'll do cervical lengths. They'll also do it with um, multiples, like twins and triplets. Um, Mm. Because if the cervix stays nice and long and thick, then you're not about to go into preterm delivery, right? Whereas when it starts to shrink down and thin out, then something is happening that's causing that cervix to get really really thin and that all happens before you actually start to dilate so that's what we're that's what your ob was looking Mm -hmm. at that's what you're talking about is that that cervix starts to get thin before it starts to dilate and it did that too early right yeah so tell me about your first hospital stay with tate okay it was I always, as soon as I hear this question, I instantly go into like comparison mode between Tate and Reese. With Tate, he came so unexpected. It was like, went into labor in the middle of the night and he was born four hours later. It was very fast. And so I feel like when I look back on my experience with Tate in the hospital, it was just so full of unknowns. I, like I said, I was a brand new mom. It was my first pregnancy. He was my first baby, obviously. Um... And I had no idea what a NICU even entailed. I had never been exposed to it before. I had never really known anyone that had premature babies. And so I was so naive to what that journey was (laughs) going to look like. Um, He was born at 30 weeks on the nose. So his like journey through the NICU was very what you would expect. It was very typical for a 30-weeker. I think... For me, the hardest part of it was just literally, I mean, I gave birth to him vaginally and he wasn't crying. He wasn't breathing on his own. I didn't even know if he was alive. I wasn't told the gender. And so he was gone so quickly and they took my husband with him. And I'm grateful for that. Um, But I just remember laying there and being like, what's happening? Like, is he okay? Is he alive? Is he going to start breathing? He was in the NICU so fast um, that it felt like I didn't really get to process my NICU experience until I was home. Yeah. And I think that's that's probably very true. I did a podcast on trauma where I had a clinical social worker talking about just anxiety and trauma. Mm. Um, and the two big key takeaways from that podcast were, one, you have to think think about and process through what should have happened, right? Like, Mm -hmm. what was I supposed to have? What should have happened in order to be able to accept where you're at? And you can't always do that until after. Um, 
because when you're in it, you're in such survival mode yes. that you're just going hour by hour and day by day. Um, so it doesn't surprise me to hear you say that you really couldn't process through it until after you had gone home. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things, too, when you're in the NICU from a parent standpoint, there's that level of intimidation, right? And it's not, I mean, the NICU doctors that we had were absolutely wonderful, but I also felt like I was always walking on eggshells because I never wanted to be overbearing with the nurses or ask a silly question or ask a question that might annoy them because they're busy. And so a lot of the times I felt like, I just, I was there for probably about like 15 to 17 hours a day. And it was just, I was there all the time. And I just felt like, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to hold my baby and I'm going to do all of the care, like as much as possible. And we're just going to get through this. Um, And I often would just sit and rock Tate. And I remember just feeling like, I remember just saying to him, like, you can do this, buddy. Like, we're going to get home. Like, I promise if you get home, like you're going to have a good life. And I look back and just think like, It sounds dramatic to me now, but that was how I felt. I just, there was so many unknowns. I had never heard of a bratty before. I didn't know that babies' hearts would slow down because they had to remember to start breathing again. That was just all so new to me. So for those of us in the United States, we call them Brady's. Uh, Oh, really? (laughs) You you were, you said, I've never heard of a bratty before. And I'm like, I haven't heard of a bratty either. (laughs) For the U.S. listeners, it's a Brady. It's good to know if I have any Canadian listeners when I talk about apnea and bradycardia or A's and B's or apnea and Brady's, uh, I'm calling them Brady's and you call them Brady's. Or bra- that is so what? funny. <laughs> Brady. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. So did he have any major complications or was it a pretty smooth it a, course? It was a pretty smooth course. Um, he like the biggest thing for him was the Braddies or the Brady's um, eating was also another big thing. But I think that that's very typical with especially little boys in the NICU. He had a really hard time figuring it out and it took a lot of work to even get him to take 20 mils out of a bottle, let alone nursing. Um, so yeah, he didn't have, there was no surgery. There was no like, massive intervention. It was pretty smooth for a 30-weeker, thankfully. Well, and I think, so my um, cousin and his wife had a 34-and-change-week baby that was in the NICU. And I think from a physician standpoint, we do this all the time. And it's, I mean, it's a 34, 35-weeker. They're they're fine. They're going to go home in a couple of weeks. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they need CPAP. Yeah, they need some help eating. Your baby's going to be fine. And for 30 weeks, right? It's also, hey, 30 weekers do great. They're going to be fine. You're going to go home. Occasionally bad things happen, but they happen at term and they happen at preterm. And then you kind of focus in on the 22 to 27 weekers who can mm-hmm. have more complications. And so those those feel a little bit scarier. But I think for parents, we can't under underestimate the amount of trauma and the amount of anxiety and that 30 weekers and 32 weekers and 34 week parents go through because whether your baby is 24 weeks or 35 weeks or term who has a surgical need 
it still is your baby in the NICU mm-hmm. and your baby is sick. And and I don't, I think from a parent's perspective, you can't, um, you know, I have, some people will say, oh, my baby was 30 weeks. We were in the NICU. I didn't have to go through anything like what they had to go through, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Referring to people that were born at a younger gestation. But it's still your NICU experience and you still have all those same feelings. You don't have to compare or justify how you feel. You just have to feel it. I love that. And two things I want to mention there is number one, I think that the physicians and the nurses that recognize that are the ones that I felt safest with because there were a few times where I felt like I'm not sure how your NICU's their work, but ours had bays. So it was like bay one, bay two, bay three. And when you got to bay seven and eight, that was kind of the growers and the feeders who were basically just working on getting those full feeds up so that they could go home. And as you move down there, the rounds with the doctors um, seemed to go faster. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I felt like skipped over a little bit or like I wasn't given the chance to speak. And to me, when Tate was in, Tate and Reese were in Bay 1, I was just as concerned as when they were in Bay 8. It didn't, it didn't change for me. And I often will have people, especially now that I'm doing the podcast, reach out and be like, well, I was only in the NICU for four days. Like, I can't imagine what you went through. And just like you said, I always say to them, you know what, one day in the NICU is hard because you're exposed. And there are so many things outside of what is happening with your baby that are traumatic in the NICU. Um, My husband and I always talk about, I won't get into details because it's not my story to tell, but we watched other people's babies go through some very, very traumatizing things. And even being the mom sitting there trying not to look, but you're there and you see what's happening and you hear the codes and you see the teams rush in that's hard even if it's not your baby yeah well and I think it's one of those things where it's kind of a mind game with parents um so in my NICU we have private rooms along the outsides and then in the Mm -hmm. center of the NICU we call it the quad pod and so there's four babies and that's really where the newest admissions and the really really sick babies go and we also do surgery on the unit so they're in there but if you're in one of the private rooms that's right across the entrance um and you can you can see those transports coming in you can see the fact that something's happening you can watch a family bring 10 people into the NICU all at once there's Mm -hmm. only one reason we allow visitation x you know yeah. Uh, extended family. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. There's only one reason that we allow those exceptions to the visitation rule. And so as the parent that's sitting there watching it happening, first, your heart is breaking for this other family because you realize they're coming in to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. And second, you're thinking, oh, I'm so glad I'm not them. And so you're you're feeling grateful and then you're feeling guilty for feeling grateful. And it kind of really messes with your mind a little bit 100 percent. and another level to that is even when your baby is close to being home you know that the NICU is a complete roller coaster and that anything could happen at any point because you've either experienced it with your baby or you've seen it happen to other babies and you are just holding your breath that that does not become you and until you get home well so you think until you get home 
that you worry about that a hundred percent. And it's so interesting to hear it from your side. And I've talked to lots of the nurses and stuff and they're always like, or they would say to me like, he's like 34 weeks now, Taryn, like you're good. You're in the clear. And I just remember saying like, but you don't know what it feels like to be sitting in my chair here and in my shoes and not knowing that because I don't know that it's the first time I've been through this. Yeah. No. And and it's true. You don't, and you don't have the, I've sent home a thousand 34 week babies and only one of them, you know, something bad happened. So Mm -hmm. I have this huge perspective of once we get to this point, I'm really very comfortable, but it's also the thing of it's not my baby, right? Mm-hmm. It's your baby and you are going to have all the worries and I have the medical worries and there's a difference there. Um, yes. And, and I don't think that as healthcare providers, we can underestimate that difference, the difference between mom worry and the difference between doctor worry. And sometimes mm. they're the same and other times they're very different. Yeah. And yeah, I just think that recognizing that and believing that from your standpoint, I think that that, whether you ever notice it or not, that goes such a far way with the moms that you're working with. It doesn't matter if your baby was born at 24 weeks or 34 weeks. Your birth plan is gone. Your your desire to take your baby home with you when you're discharged from the hospital is gone. Your ability to hold your baby and breastfeed your baby the minute your baby is born is gone. And that doesn't matter where you're born. And all of those moms are feeling the same thing. One baby gets better faster than the other baby, but it doesn't take away that experience of all of that stuff going away to begin with. Yes. And I think it's also important to remember that like as moms and parents, we have outside life happening. There is still stuff happening in your own world and watching for me, one of the hard parts was watching my sister-in-law who was due at the same time as me go into labor naturally and have her baby and go home with her baby and have pictures of her baby and her other kids in the hospital room. I will never get that. I never got those experiences. So I've had to really grieve that to be able to move on from it. Yeah. And and it's so important to say, I wanted, I wanted X, Y, and Z. I wanted that. I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. But here's all the other things that I did get that I can be grateful for that kind of helps in letting go of the things that you wish you had had. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I agree with that. So how was your experience with your daughter different than your experience with your son in the NICU? Because they were born at approximately the same, from a NICU standpoint, 30 and 31 weekers are about the same. Right. Um, Experience-wise, inside the NICU walls, very similar. They, (laughs) I always say Reese is my feisty one because she seemed to progress a little bit quicker than Tate did. But timeline-wise, we were in the NICU five days apart. Like our stays were five days Um, different. So Reese had a little bit more, she ended up getting a UTI. um, And so we had to treat that, which meant she was having a ton of bratties beforehand. That was kind of our sign. And so there, we had kind of more scares with Reese, I guess, in that sense. It was very different because I knew what to expect from her. Being through it already, I knew what to expect. But it was... And this sounds silly and a lot of people 
can't believe I say this, but Reese's NICU stay was five million times harder because I knew what to expect. I knew what she was going to go through. I knew what tests, I knew what was coming and I was so sad for her. Oh, interesting. That is not how I would have anticipated you answering that question. Mm -hmm. I would have thought, okay, well, the second time it's hard to watch, but it was easier on me as a mom because I knew what to expect and I wasn't as surprised and I kind of had already built up a trust and knew how to Mm. talk to doctors and advocate for my child and you like I would yeah. I would think those things make would make it easier but I can see how you would say oh it was harder because now you're not worried about I, I don't know to me it almost feels like um the first time everything just kind of is so new and so foreign and you're just trying to learn everything you can about every moment that you almost don't have a chance to feel bad for your baby mm-hmm. whereas the second time the focus isn't on all of the learning it's only about watching your daughter go through the process so I can see that yes that's exactly it and it felt like everything bad that happened to her that's exactly it I knew what she was experiencing with Tate when he would have a bratty I was so scared I was just like put him down. I don't know what's happening. There's alarms going off. There's nurses coming to the bedside. But with Reese, I could basically not handle it from a medical standpoint, but I knew what it was. I knew that her heart rate was going to come back up, but it just hurt my heart knowing that this happened again. And why is it my babies that have to go through this? And I knew how to do all of their care. So it was almost like I didn't have the same adrenaline going through it. I didn't have, like you said, that learn mode. But also, I had a toddler who up until this point was my entire world who is now at home and who is crying for me and who misses me and who is, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. He had a really, really hard time. And kids are, of course, they're resilient, but... I knew that he was struggling. And so to see both of my kids have to struggle at the same time. And it felt like when I was with Tate, I wasn't with Reese and I felt like she was alone. And when I was with Reese, I knew that Tate's heart hurt. And as a mom, that was probably the hardest thing going through our entire journey was knowing my kids hurt and I couldn't make it better. I couldn't fix them. And I think that that's motherhood in general right Mm -hmm. so you know it first happens when your first baby is introduced to a sibling and now they're not the center of your world and they're clearly struggling and some kids do better than others but you know that's that first thing but it doesn't it's not just in the NICU and it's not just as toddlers that's also like high school age kids who you worked really really hard on this project and you failed and I wish I could take that pain away, but I can't. You Mm -hmm. fell in love with this girl or this boy and they don't love you back. That's part of life. I wish I could take that pain away, but I can't. So I feel like throughout all of motherhood, we're Mm -hmm. trying to protect our children. But at the same time, they have to experience all of those things in order to turn into well-rounded, healthy individuals. Yes, I... 
shared very openly about our journey with Tate, but especially Reese um, on Instagram and on Facebook and stuff. And I had made a post and I was having a really hard day and I made a post saying how um, basically what I just said and how I've had, and I had so many people reach out to me and it was from such a good place in their heart, just saying, we're so sorry to hear that Reese is in the NICU, but it's going to be so much easier this time. And you're just going to fly through and it's going to be such a distant memory. And people mean well, but sometimes the things that they say, it's just like, Oh, that is so not how it is. But a mom commented on this post that I made and she said, Oh, I can just so relate to you. This weekend, I had to choose to go to my daughter's dance practice instead of my son's soccer practice. And I just remember thinking, hmm, I would love to make that choice right now because that's not the choice that I have. I either go and sit in a NICU where I have just lost all hopes and dreams of what my birth and what the first few months of my daughter's life would look like instead of being with my child who is crying for me, my toddler who just wants his mom and I couldn't be there. And so I felt like I was failing all the time. So her comparison to me, I was just kind of like, man, it, it's not, that isn't, the, I would love to have that choice, but it's not the same. But that heartache for sure extends all through motherhood. And the examples you gave were great where you want to fix your kids and you just can't. And that for me was the hardest part through all of it. Yeah. I think parents who have their first baby in the NICU, it's in some ways harder because you haven't been through the normal birthing experience. You, you're starting off your parenting journey Mm-hmm. having other people help take care of your child which is not how you want to start off being a parent um and so i think that that's really really hard at the same time i think having your first baby in the nicu is so much easier from a logistical standpoint because you mm-hmm. don't have other kids at home your heart isn't pulled in three different directions because you've got your your other kids at home and that makes it easier and then for your subsequent children having them in the NICU is harder because you've got other things you can't just sit in the NICU for 17 hours a day like I mean you said you sat in the NICU with Tate for a really really Mm -hmm. long time and then with your daughter you you probably were torn between your house and the NICU more often it made those experiences different yes yeah and you know, there's so much baggage that comes with you, right? With Tate, it was just like, it was trauma. I was truly traumatized with the experience that we had. And whether that was like kind of situations with nurses and then the insane delivery of him coming so fast and I was only eight centimeters. And so he wasn't they didn't really believe me that he was coming out. And then he was, it was, it was so traumatic. And so through his experience, I was still trying to process, okay, what the hell just happened? Like, what am I doing here? But again, with Reese, the baggage that I carried into that was, I know how hard this is going to be. And I know when they ask you to step out that you probably don't want to be there for a reason because I've seen what they're doing be done to other babies, you know? So my experiences were so similar, but emotionally they were completely different. Yeah. 
I can totally see that. We, I have a mom, she had a 23-weeker in my unit, and then she had a 32-week baby in the mm. unit as her second one. And um, I, I think that's hard. Was there, yeah, I, I'll, I'll stop there because I, I haven't, I haven't talked to her about sharing her story, so I don't want to share mm. her story. But I think she had a similar experience to you. That second stay felt, even though it was a 32-weeker instead of a 23-weeker, it felt really, really hard. And I think that like you, and you can, for sure, I can look at my kids and say, okay, medically, this is what was really hard in it. But then emotionally is different. You know, there's a difference there. And it's a really hard thing to explain to people, not so much say you, because you have that experience of the NICU life and you understand that. But when you're talking to people who have never even stepped foot in a NICU, like me before I had my kids, it just doesn't, you just can't drive your point across. Do you know what I mean? It The NICU is its own world. Like within medicine, we are our own world. Within the land of babies, we are our own world. Yes. It is just, it's a place that is totally foreign with its own language, with its own set of... I don't want to say rules and regulations, but it's got kind of its own culture Mm -hmm. um, and it's very, very small. And if you don't, most people don't even know it exists. And then when you find out it exists, you're like, whoa, what in the world is this? Right? Like, it's just a very different place. Um, Yeah. But that's the world that I live in, right? Like, it's all, it's all normal to me. It's normal. Yeah. And for parents, you do have to learn about this, this whole new world, this whole new language, this whole new way of taking care of things. Yes. And you don't find out about the NICU because of a good reason. Yes. It's never like, oh, I cannot wait. We're going to go spend the weekend in the NICU. It's, it's not a good, I don't want to say it's not a good place to be because I genuinely have made some like really incredible friends and people that I look up to and admire very, very much, but it's not, I wouldn't go hang out there for another two months with my baby. Yeah. <laughs> That's just not because. where we want to go. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I always say people are like, well, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a doctor and I take care of uh, babies. Oh, that's so wonderful. And no, actually I'm pretty much every parent's worst nightmare. Like <laughs> no parent wants to meet me. I'm, I am good at my job. Um, overall, most parents have really good experiences and most babies go home pretty healthy, but uh, I still am every parent's worst nightmare, which, you know, like that's not the job description that you really want is being every parent's worst nightmare. Right. Yeah. No, I I feel that a lot. (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit about this idea of mom guilt. Mm. Um, This idea that somehow... We failed because our babies were in the NICU. Um, I think one of the most important things I tell moms in the first week that they're in the NICU is, this is not your fault. You did everything Mm. right. I'm so proud of you. You're doing a good job. This, this, and because all, all moms come into the NICU feeling like, why did this happen to me? Why did my body fail? I should have been able to do this better. Mm-hmm. How did you feel when your babies were born premature? Basically, like everything you just said, um, I really connect to the piece of like, I should have known because 
as women, there is this pressure on us that you're going to grow up, you're going to get married, and then you're going to have kids. And then you're going to love it and you're going to enjoy it. And you, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a working mom, you're just going to kill it. And it's just going to be awesome. And that's not the case for all of us. It's it Things don't go as planned. And when things don't go as planned and you're faced with uncertainty, that can be really, really challenging. Um, with Tate, I remember just feeling like I wasn't good enough a lot through the NICU. Um, and even, you know, I think that the mom guilt in the NICU can add up. I don't think it's like a, you know, in motherhood, you're like, oh gosh, like Tate is watching another show today. Like I feel so guilty. I know that he could be doing something way more productive with his time. And you have that guilt. But when you're in the NICU, the guilt is like this constant state, but then the little things can just make you feel like you are being pushed into the ocean and that you are drowning and that you can't get out of it. Um, with Reese, I think, and I think that my biggest thing for moms is just to educate yourself on the female body. Because with Tate, I had no idea. I knew I had a bicornuate uterus. I didn't know what that really was. I mean, my OB drew me a diagram. I didn't look into it more, really. I did a little bit of Google searching, but Dr. Google isn't the most credible source either. Um, but once I understood about my body after having Tate and I did a lot of research and I got a lot of research from my OB. When I had Reese early, I knew that it wasn't my fault. I I 100% firmly knew in my heart that I could have not stopped this. I did nothing wrong. I, I believed that. Um, I went to counseling a lot after Tate and I am a huge advocate for it. And I love the piece where you were talking about, you have to basically grieve what you thought was going to happen in order to move past it. And I did that and it was hard and it took a lot of work, um, a lot of work. But when I was in the NICU with Reese, I was so grateful that I did. And I tell people, I didn't feel guilty about Reese being in the NICU. I was sad and I was very mad but I didn't feel guilty because I understood my body and I understood myself enough to know that I did not inflict this on her. This was not me being irrational or negligent. This is just sometimes the path that we take. Yeah. Well, so I have an example that's totally not related to the NICU, but it has to do with breastfeeding. That's mm. very similar. So I am a pediatrician. I'm a neonatologist. I promote breastfeeding. I believe in breastfeeding. I think breast milk is wonderful. So I had my first daughter and we, I tried breastfeeding. And um, I have a medical condition called Poland syndrome, which is where your pectoralis muscle, your breast and your bicep does not form. And so on mm. the left side of my body, I have a breast implant because I have no breast tissue. And in college, when they were putting that implant in, um, they, I did a reduction on the right so that it, everything would be the same size. So when you're making that decision in college, it's, I mean, it's a college decision. Yeah, they tell me you may or may not be able to breastfeed, but that felt so distant to me at mm -hmm. the time. And I just wanted to look like a normal person. Um, 
that it didn't matter. It didn't matter at the time. So fast forward, however many years, lots of years, because <laughs> I had my kids when I was older, um, and I had Emmeline, and I. I was worried about it my entire pregnancy. I desperately wanted to breastfeed her and it was horrible. So the left side that has the implant, well, there's a reason there's an implant there. There was no breast tissue on that side. I never made Mm. a drop of milk. And on the other side, I would pump every two hours and I'd get five mLs. So you add up three days worth of pumping to get one bottle and It was so hard. I just remember feeling like I am a mom. Everybody says in the first couple weeks of motherhood, if all you do is sleep and feed your baby, you are a successful parent. And Mm -hmm. what was the one thing I couldn't do? I could not feed my baby. And I felt like the worst mother on the planet. I was, it was horrible. And there's billboards and breast is best and Mm -hmm. uh, we're baby friendly and you shouldn't do formula and 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 here I was totally failing as a mom because I could not make milk Mm -hmm. and when she was six weeks old my grandmother had a 90th birthday party and we went to I went to Minnesota um and I was like I am not taking my breast pump because Uh, it's this is crazy to take it and I stopped even trying to pump and it is the best thing that I ever did Mm. and through that process she became a formula fed baby and our relationship was better and I forgave myself for not being able to make milk not that day like 18 months Mm -hmm. later after going through a lot of work and dealing with some postpartum depression and anxiety that all probably stemmed in part from the fact that I felt like I failed my daughter when my Mm -hmm. body wouldn't make milk and you feel so guilty. Um, But it was a ton. I did a ton of work around that and I am now firmly in the breast milk is best for babies. Fed is best for everyone. Mm. Let's, Let's make choices. Let's not make moms feel bad about what their body did this this is Mm -hmm. not something that you have control over I didn't have control over the fact that I was born with Poland syndrome I didn't have control over the fact that this the same way you don't have control over the fact that your left leg is longer than your right leg or or whatever do you know what I mean yes a hundred percent but coming to terms with that in dealing with it and grieving the fact that I wasn't going to be able to breastfeed my daughter which was super super hard it made it so that when my twins were born I rolled into the postpartum room the nurses had heard me give talks on breastfeeding and why we shouldn't shame moms who can't breastfeed because this is not fair and I rolled into the room and they rolled the pump right out and they brought me the formula to feed my twins and I never had that feeling of failure with my twins even though they never got an ounce of breast milk from me. Mm -hmm. I mean, they got a tiny little bit of colostrum when it would come, but um, I didn't pump every two hours with them. I didn't save milk for five days to give them one bottle. Um, But I would have if I hadn't dealt with the fact that my body didn't work with my first pregnancy, and that's not my fault. Yeah. I, the whole breastfeeding you add that NICU into it I mean it is 
a world. I don't think as a woman you can imagine what it is like to breastfeed until you have a baby and you are breastfeeding. It's just not comprehensible. I I really don't think that. When I was in the NICU with um, Tate, my milk came in relatively okay. It took a few days, but I had just been through preterm labor. So I expected that it, I was told that it might take a little bit. Um, with Reese, I was a C-section. She was footling breech. And so she was a C-section. Um, so adding that on there, plus prematurity, my body, I think, I believe my body was like, okay, what the hell just happened? Yeah, we're going to halt the milk here. Like I didn't get a drop for five days. I was this might be too much information, but I was basically pumping blood for five days. Had that have been my first baby, I do not know what that would have looked like. I cannot imagine. With it being my second, with it being my second baby, and with having a very good friend who is a lactation consultant, teaching me about my body and milk production and what I can do if I want to. That was so huge. And understanding that it's my choice. It's my body. It's my choice. And one of the best things that the neonate ever did for me was when I told her on day one that, well, my milk isn't coming in. She said, Taryn, it sounds like you have a bit of shame around that. Am I, am I getting that right? And I said, I do. Yeah. A hundred percent. And she's like, that is why we have donor milk. If you would like to use donor milk, we do not judge you for that. We do not hold that option back that is available for you. And I just remember, first of all, bawling because I I had permission to just be okay. And Reese, for the first three days, she had a little bit of colostrum that I had gotten like initially. And then she had donor milk. And it was almost like the neonatologist giving me that permission allowed me to give myself permission because I think that a lot of where mom guilt comes from too, for me anyways, was like the outside judgment that I thought was coming on to me that it possibly it like people maybe weren't even judging me, but I felt like that. And for both of my kids, well, for Tate, I just remember feeling like I felt so guilty all the time, but I was also so scared of like, are people talking about me? Like, what are they saying? What do they think I did? Because from the outside, I used to think that like women who abuse drugs and alcohol or got into like a bad car accident or slipped and fell, that's whose babies were born premature. Not a healthy 24-year-old who really took great care of her body while she was pregnant. So I think for me too, that just like snowballed that mom guilt effect was like, oh, what are they saying? Like, do they think that I went out partying and now I have Tate? And we're not saying any of that. Most of the time we're telling moms, you did everything right. This is mm-hmm. not your fault. You did a great job. And yes. I think more people need to hear that and more people need to know that your body can do what your body can do. And stuff happens when you're pregnant and mm-hmm. it's not your fault. It's just what your body is doing. Yes, I I love that. I And I cannot be a bigger advocate for counseling. I it literally changed my world after I had Tate. I felt like I could just be me again. And it's, I won't get into that because that's a big story, but I ended up switching Tate's 
fully onto formula. We came home kind of breastfeeding, very uneducated on breastfeeding. So not really working, switched him fully to formula. And I had the exact same experience as you. All of a sudden, I loved motherhood. Mm-hmm. I loved it. It wasn't as stressful. It wasn't as painful. Um, so yeah, I think that so many moms can relate to that too, that feeling. Yeah. And I think I always say breast is best as long as it's enjoyable by mom and baby. Mm-hmm. Um, because if it's not, it's adding more stress. I mean, think about it. Every time you go to feed your child, you feel like a failure. When you're feeding your child, that should be the best time you have with your baby. And you can bond with your baby whether you're breastfeeding or formula feeding. Um, And I would much rather somebody formula feed and feel good about themselves and their relationship with their baby than to breastfeed and feel like they're a horrible parent. I mean, that's truly... I mean, that is how I felt. And that was truly a really detrimental place to be for everybody. Yeah. And I like, I personally love our, this is maybe getting a little off topic, but I loved our journey with feeding Tate in the sense that Derek got to give him bottles and Derek loved that. He is such a hands-on dad. He was excited to be getting up with him in the night once I finally said, okay, we're going to give formula a shot. And life was just better for all of us. It is what worked for our family and that's all that mattered. And they're hard decisions, but sometimes you need to look at the bigger picture. Right. And I I think that that really is kind of a take home of all of parenting, right? There's Mm. so many ways to do things, but you make the decisions that work best for your family. You make the decisions that feel right for your family. And then appreciate the fact that somebody else is going to do something different. It doesn't make it wrong. It's just different. And at the end, if you have healthy, well-adjusted kids, does it, does it matter? Right? Like you do what works for your family. Yeah. It's funny how we're in such a huge time right now of like support and we all like moms supporting moms, but I'm like, there's a difference between supporting moms that are doing the same thing as you and what you see is right and respecting moms and understanding that their journey is not yours and they get to make those choices for their family. Yeah. I think that's a huge, I really love what you just said. There's a difference in supporting moms who believe in what you believe in and respecting Mm -hmm. all moms. Um, You have to respect the mom that bottles feeds when you're a breastfeeder and you have to respect the mom that breastfeeds when you're a bottle feeder, or you could take that to baby wearing, or you could take Mm -hmm. that to uh, the mom that throws her kid in a pool and does the sink or swim swimming versus the mom who doesn't, right? Like yes, you make, everybody is trying to make good decisions for their kids. I don't know a parent out there who goes, oh, hey, I think I'd really like to, you know, mess with my kid today you know like I I don't no parent wants to be a failure of a parent every parent wants to make good decisions for their kids but those decisions are going to be different for every family and that's okay Mm -hmm. yeah no I I agree a hundred percent and I think that a lot of my passion behind that that is something that I'm very passionate about because I had a lot of Again, sometimes people make comments out of love and you're just like, do you understand how hurtful that was? Like, do you know that asking me why I didn't stay in the NICU longer to learn how to breastfeed instead of formula feeding? Like, do you understand the magnitude of what you just asked me? 
So, yeah, I, <laughs> I could write a book on the things that I'm just like, things not to say to a NICU mom. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> there are a lot of things not to say there to a NICU mom. There are a lot. <laughs> yeah. What if you didn't work out so hard? Well, you know, all of it. <laughs> yep. I got that one also. <laughs> yep. No, exactly. If you hadn't done this, then you wouldn't have delivered prematurely. No, I probably still would have, you know. Do you think that you and Derek liking spicy food played into having Tate early? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't even know how to answer. I'm not even going to answer that question. Yeah. Like- <laughs> and Well, and you know where that's coming from, right? Like, oh, uh, if you eat spicy food, it'll put you into labor. Or, oh, go jump on a trampoline, it'll put you into labor. So, oh, you jumped on a trampoline three days before you delivered. Clearly, it's your fault you delivered early because you jumped on a trampoline. No, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) Yep, exactly. (laughs) So I am fascinated by this concept of using social media as a way to enhance parenting Mm. and the flip side of it is using social media and having it really lead to more feelings of inadequacy as a mom Mm. how how do you use social media I 100% agree with you I think that social media is a tool I think that it is abused very often but I think that it's also a choice and we have power over our choices. Um, I have zero guilt or shame. And this is something that I really came to when I was working with the guilt that I had around having Tate early. I have no shame around who I follow and who I don't follow. I don't follow one of my very close girlfriends on Instagram. She knows it we're still very, very good friends because some of the things that she posts about trigger me. And if I am being triggered over what I am seeing on social media, what is it doing for me? Well, it's putting me in a bad mood, which then makes me impatient with my kids, which then makes our days a lot harder. It is an injustice for me to be following people or content that I does not make me feel good. So In terms of like the Messy Mama podcast and community, I think that like we kind of just talked about, there is a difference between supporting people because you love what they're doing and respecting them. And so I firmly, I so firmly believe that creating groups of people. Now that's essentially what your social media is. You're allowing groups of people into your space, into your energy. So who are you allowing in there? Well, I follow people who inspire me to be healthier, but don't push me and don't make me feel guilty if I'm not working out every day of (laughs) quarantine life. I follow other moms who inspire me with just the happiness that they have in their home. Um, And I just, yeah, I think that We compare ourselves whether we realize it or not. It just happens. I think it's just part of being a human. You see people with these like perfectly curated, decorated homes. I got to a point where me and my husband were like, should we move? Should we knock down this wall? Like, should we be completely gutting our bathroom? Like, what do we need to be doing? And I just remember being like, why? Well, I was following a pile of designers on social media and I wanted what they had. And that just wasn't doable for us. So I am very purposeful with what I do on social media, when I use social media, 
when I'm on my phone around my kids? Is it making me a better parent? Is it making me a more impatient parent? Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, <clears throat> I am very active in terms of what, how, like, I will follow people and then I will unfollow. So, mm -hmm. oh, I'm currently working on this project and I want to get a lot of information about this project. Well, let me follow people who have information about that project. And then, oh, I'm done with that project. Let me unfollow. Or let me, I'm going to block when I'm trying to get pregnant and all of my mm. friends are announcing that they're pregnant and I'm not pregnant. I'm not trying to get pregnant right now in case anybody's listening to this going, <laughs> oh, Dr. Zimmerman's going to get pregnant again. No, Dr. Zimmerman is not going to get pregnant again. Um, <laughs> but like when we were trying to get pregnant and we were older and it took longer and we needed to do some stuff to help us along, it was really, really hard to see all of my friends with their newborns and their pregnant bellies. And so I just hit them for a while and then I don't have to see them. That wasn't helping me and it just mm -hmm. made me more sad and then I had my kids we have our kids it doesn't bother me to see my friends posting all of their pregnant pictures that is wonderful I'm so glad you're pregnant I'm so happy that I'm not right so you can actively manage some of that stuff to to help so that you aren't triggering yourself every day and I think that we have this weird I don't know if stigma is the right word around social media where it's like all of a sudden that's our life. And if I'm going to go back to the, the um, example, that's the word I'm trying to say, <laughs> the example with my girlfriend, just because I don't follow her on social media does not mean that I am not so grateful for her and so proud of her and love her and support her. A follow does not equal validation. It just doesn't. You are not determined, like your worth is not determined by how many likes you get and how many friends you have and followers. Do we all want social media accounts that have lots of followers? Perhaps. But what is the reason behind that? Are you trying to leave an, a positive impact? Are you trying to support people or are you doing it for show? Just, just a rhetorical question, you know? And so, yeah, I think that social media is so powerful. And I think that also since having my kids, it's really made me think about what am I bringing into my life? Because what I bring into my life affects my kids. Right. And it, I also think about, oh my gosh, when are my kids going to want to use social media? And how can I model good mm -hmm. social media use? And wow, I'm super, like, I didn't have to deal with social media when I was in high school. I'm really Thank glad. <laughs> uh, I definitely don't want to have, like... I don't know, that terrifies me. And they're not old enough to do any of that stuff yet, which is great. I have time to figure it out. But I am making conscious decisions about my use of it as I'm thinking about how I would want to model it for my kids and how I would want my children to use it. Because it can be really, really beneficial. There are, mm -hmm. there's preemie groups out there. You can find people that are going through similar things to you or that have similar values. If your value mm -hmm. is to live in an RV and travel the world and homeschool, there are RV living homeschoolers on social media that you can mm -hmm. follow. And if your goal is to be part of a country club with tennis communities so that you can play golf and tennis, there are those communities as well. So you can kind of find people that are similar to what you want and kind of tailor that so that mm -hmm. it, and both of those are good, fine choices, but they're different. 
Exactly. And social media is so powerful. And I think one of the things that's very concerning to me as a mom, who my kids are like you, much too young to be even getting there. I don't think that it, I don't know if kids understand how powerful it is. Does the grade 11 girl that's on social media following every size zero model with photoshopped pictures understand that that is being like instilled into her worth and making her believe that that's what she needs to look like? Yeah. I don't think so. Right. And I I think it still is such a new, a new medium um, that we don't know all of the ramifications yet. Mm -hmm. Um, I did read one study about how anxiety and depression went down in kids with the COVID um, closures of school because there weren't as many pressures on them that I found fascinating and it needs to be validated and I can't quote any of the statistics or who wrote it or anything but I, I read it um, wow and I that's just thought it was me. really interesting but I also know that for other children it had the opposite effect of mm. I no longer have that typical routine and that normal outlet and now what I'm dealing with is even worse and I need more help. So kind of, you know, that paper was published, but then I know of a friend of a friend kind of thing. And so that's it right. went both ways. Yeah. And that's, I always just struggle. My husband and I are both teachers and there is so much technology use in classrooms now, which is wonderful in a lot of ways. But there are also kids that abuse that opportunity and are doing very, very disrespectful, harmful things on it. And I always just have such a hard time because I'm like, you, your frontal cortex lobe, whatever that thing is called is not developed yet. And you do not understand the magnitude of what you are saying to this person online. You, you cannot fathom it. And it's scary. It's very scary. Well, and I think we're willing to say things online and in comments that you would never say in person. Mm-hmm. So the preemie mom who delivered their 24-weeker whose baby is on a vent and just had surgery, you would never say to that mom in person, I can't believe that you're putting your child through this. Uh, but in a comment on social media, you're, you're, your fingers are more than happy to mm-hmm. type up, wow, you're torturing your kid. Good for you. Right? Like... Don't say that stuff. It's, I mean, it's amazing what people are willing to say on social media that you would never say in person. Yeah. It's our thoughts become actions, right? Obviously. Unfortunately, we can act a lot faster on a keyboard than we can in person. We, like you said, having the bravery to say that to a mom is a lot different than letting your fingers do the work on a keyboard. Yeah. No, they're totally different things. So, yeah. One of the things that I find hardest as a parent is parenting in public. Mm. And so I take my three kids to Target. Oh, this is all pre-COVID, of course. Um, And I have to do the grocery shopping and I get one of the mega, mega carts and I have all three kids with a device and some headphones on watching a show as I'm going through Target because I have to get the shopping done and I can't leave them at home. They're five and three and three or five and two and two however old they were um and the number of looks you get when you're doing Mm -hmm. something different than somebody else and so 
I'm curious. I know kind of where I sit on it now after going through it for so many years or whatever. I'm curious uh, your thoughts on parenting in public. (laughs) I'm going to censor my initial thoughts on it. You know, I think that there's this is such a loaded question because I think I have like two things that are just like popping into my mind. Number one, having realistic expectations for yourself. I think so many times as moms, we're like, okay, we're going to pack the kids up. We're going to go to Target. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to slowly drink my Starbucks and we're going to wander the aisles and I'm going to find some cute pills. Like that just doesn't happen with my kids anyways. Mine either. (laughs) And so I think just like really realizing that motherhood is messy and it's hard and that's okay. That doesn't mean that it's not very beautiful, but it's messy. And sometimes those target trips are going to be a disaster and having those realistic expectations for yourself for me is so important. I know that if I am going to Walmart because we don't have target, sadly, um, I know that it's going to take me longer. And so I plan my day so that I have longer, you know, really understanding what that's going to take. And I am someone who, um, I get very anxious very easily over situations like that. If my kids were to be having full blown meltdowns, I know that it can make me anxious and sweaty. So I'm going to plan my day accordingly because I hate being anxious and sweaty in stores. It's the worst. (laughs) So I think that just like having those realistic expectations for me has been so huge. And that's been a very big learning curve over my three and a half years of being a mom, which I know isn't that long. But then I think the other part to it too, is like being confident in your parenting, even if you know, it's not like going to work out all the time. And what I mean by that is I love learning about like the psychology of children and like why they do the things that they do. Am I saying that you need to go and like read up on all the books and follow all the big Instagrammers that, you know, the parent coaches? No, but for me, I want to leave a situation feeling good about it. If that means that Tate is having a meltdown in Walmart, how am I going to handle it? I'm going to think about that ahead of time. I now have a firm step-by-step how I handle my child going through tantrums. I handle it the same at home as I do in Walmart. And I feel good about it because for whatever reason, it doesn't matter what your reason is, but I know that, you know, if this happens, this is how I'm going to handle it. And I'm going to come out of that situation feeling good about it. Whether it means, I mean, good goodness the other day he was literally laying on the floor refusing to use his legs telling me his legs didn't work this wasn't this was pre-covid in the grocery store and I had people like moving their carts around him and I'm just like you know what I'm gonna stand here and I'm gonna give him space and I'm gonna acknowledge his feelings he's three he has really big feelings but I'm gonna give him that space to do it and pretty soon he popped up and we had a hug and we continued on I'm good. I feel good with that. Yeah. So I have a story that's similar to that. When Emmeline, that's my oldest, was younger and she would lay on the floor and have a temper tantrum, I would just stand there and very calmly say, okay, let me know when you're done expressing your big feelings and Mm -hmm. we can have a hug and go on. And that's what we did at home and that's what I did in the grocery store. So I'm at King Supers or whatever and Emmeline decides to lay on the floor and have a temper tantrum and so I'm standing there and I say 
oh, I'm really sorry you need to express those big feelings right now on the floor. Let me know when you're done and we'll keep going. And these people were walking past and they heard me say that. And the look on their face was like, what in the world is she doing? But no sooner had they gotten past me, Emmeline stood up and went, okay, I'm finished. Let's go. And they turned back around. They were like, we thought you were crazy. Now we think you're brilliant. Um, right? So I remember that with, with Emmeline. It was a really, really good strategy for us. I didn't give her attention. She got to express her big feelings and we moved on. She would come out of those tantrums within 15 to 20 seconds. Fast forward two years. I now have two-year-old twins and a four-year-old. That strategy did not work. I tried it. Mm. I felt like a good parent. My daughter has a tantrum. She pops right out of it. We move on our way. I feel like a good parent. Well, when I have three that fall into a temper tantrum on the floor, Mm -hmm. I get so sweaty and anxious that I'm like, oh my God, I can't stick to that same strategy. So part of parenting is coming up with your strategy and using it while it works. And then when it stops working, That's because your kids are different. You cannot use the same strategy and you pivot to a new strategy. So said new strategy was, I'm going to bring a device and you can watch a movie while we're walking through Target because I can't, I cannot have three children all melt down at the same time. And I can power through Target in 20 minutes uh, with all three of them in a cart with their headphones on in their show, eating a little bit of popcorn or some, uh, goldfish right like yes I'm entertaining you I get my stuff done we get out of there uh so you I just think it's really crazy how my parenting strategies change with time Mm. because I get good at it and then the kids change and now you got to go do something different and then the kids change again so you're constantly trying to redo your parenting strategies one of the things that I always just fall back on is I have never parented a three and a half and a one-year-old before. This is my first time. I'm going to make mistakes. It's going to look messy, but I'm learning with my kids. I think that we have this like unrealistic expectation of ourselves that we're going to be perfect all the time. And that is just so, well, for me, that is so far from the truth. And I think that that's, I love that you said that you have to evolve with your kids as, as your kids change and grow. Um, And that's what's been so powerful for me. I love learning about, okay, Tate has these big emotions. He loves being validated. He loves feeling heard and seen. And so I can get him. I actually, it's so funny. We sound very similar in our experiences, but I had somebody say to me, oh, like my kids, when they were that age, they would lay there for hours. They would lay there for hours and scream. When I validate Tate's feelings and I say man buddy you have big feelings right now like you are feeling really mad aren't you like I can see how mad you are he all of a sudden goes from feeling mad and unregulated to like oh I'm being heard yes I'm mad and then I'll say to him like you let me know when you want to hug like mommy will give you a big hug and he'll hug me and squeeze me and that's how he gets those feelings but he's regulated. And I think that learning about your kids and how they can become regulated, just like you did with your daughter, for me, that makes parenting in public way easier because I'm confident in it. Does it happen every time? Absolutely not. We have had our battles 100%. We're only human. But I think that being confident in yourself, pre-planning a little bit and giving yourself time and 
coming, going into situations, knowing what you can do so that you do feel good coming out of it has been huge for me. Yeah. Well, and I, I also know that I, I, I give myself permission to not be a perfect parent. Mm -hmm. And I think by doing that, I, I can have really, really good days with a bad moment of parenting, as opposed to this one bad moment of parenting ruined the entire day. Yes. And I think, you know, sometimes we, we call it a reset. Do you need a reset? And so like my kids will be having a really bad day and you, you end up in some sort of power struggle that you didn't even know you were getting into, which is my least favorite place in parenting mm-hmm. is having a power struggle. And we're both just like clinging on to what whatever it is. I can't even think of a good example at this moment in time. And so I'll just be like, okay, I think we need a reset. And our, a reset for us is a hug and a tickle and a raspberry. And Aww. so, and then at the end of it, you both have a good giggle. And then we're like, okay, let's start over. Now, where can we go? Um, what can we do? How can we get past this moment? This is a total reset. We're just going to start over. And sometimes with Lincoln, he's one of my twins. He does not like to wake up in the morning. He, <laughs> God, he can sleep. Um, he, God, he is I feel a, him. Yes. He is my kind of person. <laughs> yes, mine too. He is a log and a half. And it took me a while to realize all I have to do in order to have a good morning with Lincoln is to go in his room and lay down and he will roll over on top of me and lay there and I rub his back and rub his head and I just start talking about the day and what we're going to do and what should we have for breakfast and are you going to pick out your clothes or am I going to pick out your clothes and and then he gets out of bed just great Mm -hmm. but when I go in his room and I'm like oh good morning buddy it's time to get up then it's a battle like he will lock into I'm not ready to get up I just want to lay in bed and so it was kind of a process of doing that like going in and saying Lincoln it's time to get up he throws a has a meltdown me going in and saying Lincoln it's time to get up he has a meltdown and then I go in and snuggle and that calms the meltdown down and then we can get up and then finally figuring out oh well I can just bypass all the meltdown stage by just going in and laying down with him first I mean, that was a huge learning thing. And now we have great, great mornings. He just needs to snuggle before he wakes up. Um, But it is learning. I'm not perfect. Nobody's going to be a perfect parent. Even if you follow all the perfect parenting advice, Mm -hmm. you're still not going to be a perfect parent because it's not just you. It's your kid and you. And they're not always going to have a good day or a perfect day either. I exactly. It's so funny is I think as adults, oftentimes we expect our kids that they never have bad days. And it's like, we have bad days. Of course, they're going to have bad days. Even little things like, you know, sometimes you can be so you're trying to get out the door and Tate will not put his shoes on. And he's like, I can't do it. Mom, will you help me? And in the meantime, I have our diaper backpack and I have my one year old in my hip and I have, you know, everything else. And I'm like, buddy, you can do it. I saw you put your shoes on 15 minutes ago. Yeah. But just I, put your shoes on. Yes. Yes. And it's so interesting because when you take a step back, I'm like, this is so developmentally appropriate for his age. This is 100%. He is on track. And you know what? Sometimes I wish other people would put my damn shoes on for me too. Like yeah. it is all okay. And yeah, I think that once I started to recognize 
okay, he's three. He is not trying to create. When we're in Walmart, he doesn't want to be having these huge emotions that are inside of him pent up and he doesn't know how to express them. He's not doing this to me, but it's my job as a parent. How can I best teach him through this? And if that means, you know what, you get to sit and watch the iPad while we shop. Perfect. Yep. Great. That's what it's there for. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you, Steve Jobs, for inventing the iPad so that my kids can watch Daniel Tiger while we go through Target. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Best invention ever. Taryn, I have just loved having you on the podcast. I feel like I could talk to you forever. And I'm really looking forward to having you back on the podcast to talk more about your Messy Mama podcast as well as life with your mighty littles as they get bigger. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, Remember to leave a review, rate us, and follow us on Apple Podcasts so that other people can learn about this podcast as well. I look forward to having you back next week as we talk to Caitlin about Leo's NICU journey, and then again in September for our mini Mighty Littles Marathon, talking to moms of babies that were born between 22 and 23 weeks. Hopefully you have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you again next week. Bye-bye. You keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.